elections do indeed have consequences, my friends, and you're seeing it now, as for the second time, the United States Supreme Court has agreed to hear a challenge to the constitutionality of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Second time in three years, the Bureau, which was the brainchild of wacky Liz Warren, U.S. Senator from Massachusetts. It's also agreed to hear another controversial case which split the conservative majority, but more on that in due course. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Dury, and welcome to another episode of the Jamie Dury Show podcast. If you have not already done so, please subscribe to the show, and you can do so in one of several easy ways. You can either download the free Podbean app, either in your Google Play Store app, uh, app Store or your iTunes App Store if you're an iPhone user, and you can look up the Jamie Dury Show and subscribe that way because podbean.com is our hosting service as it is the hosting service for many of the podcasts out there that you listen to. However, if you prefer not to download another app on your phone, you can use your native podcast aggregator app on either of those two devices and simply search out the Jamie Dury Show podcast and subscribe that way. Whichever way you choose, you'll be able to leave comments and reviews, and we would very much appreciate more of both. Give us a five-star review. We make an effort to give you a good show. The more reviews we get, the more comments we get, the more followers and subscriptions we get, the faster the show will grow. Please share the show with your friends. Ask them to give it a listen. You don't always have to share the general link to the show. If there's a particular episode you think they might be wedded to, that would convince them to follow the show. Just send them the link to that particular show, and they can listen to it on their native uh, podcast aggregator app. So, for the second time in three years, the Supreme Court agreed just today to hear a second challenge to the constitutionality of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Now, this gives another opportunity for the conservative majority to continue its campaign to restrain the administrative state. Now, I spoke about this last year in one of my podcasts, how the legislatures of this country, particularly at the federal level, especially, and maybe primarily at the federal level, have in large part abdicated their authority to legislate and govern this country by virtue of creation of federal bureaucracies which regulate people's conduct through administrative regulations that they pass. Once they're given the authority to regulate a particular part of your life or a particular industry, they no, no, no longer need to go back to Congress, the people who gave them that authority, the people who created the agency, to get approval for the things that they do. They're simply empowered to do it, and then people have to challenge it, and it has to work its way up through the courts. But there's no oversight. There's no oversight of Congress. Nobody stops them. And, and basically, we are governed in this country, particularly at the federal level, by a bunch of unelected bureaucrats in many cases, who are simply left-wing ideologues. Now, the new appeal to this uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau's constitutionality, uh, it challenges the means by which this agency is funded. The previous cases, uh, or case rather, 
dealt with simply the structure of the Bureau. Now, this agency, for those of you who don't know, it's a very controversial agency, and it regulates consumer financial products, such as credit cards, mortgages, and car loans. And as I said, it was thought up by wacky left-wing Lizzie Warren up in Massachusetts, because a lunatic like that could only get elected in a left-wing state like Massachusetts. Now, it's no surprise here the Democrats defend this thing to the last ounce of their blood. Um, This thing was formed in the wake of the 2008 financial crash, um, and they they claim that it serves as a function to to check corporate power. It doesn't do that. Uh, And much of the financial crash in 2008 was all about the mortgages, and in large part, that was all due to excesses during the Clinton era, and I'll go back to that in a minute. Republicans, of course, called this agency uh, an agency of overreach. Now, Donald Trump's administration um, was the first one to challenge its constitutionality. Now, the House Financial Services Committee chairman at that time, Jeb Henserling, was a Texas Republican, called the agency arguably the most powerful least accountable agency in U.S. history. He said this in a 2017 Wall Street op-ed. These people, he said, these zealots, have the power to determine the fairness of virtually every financial transaction in America. The agency defines its own powers and can launch investigations without cause, imposing virtually any fine or remedy devoid of of due process, he wrote. Now, I want to go back to what I just said before about the excesses of the Clinton administration. Remember, it's important to note, before we get to the issue of this agency, I think this agency is unnecessary. Uh, I don't think we need it. Uh, All they do is regulate, restrict, and uh, wind up screwing up the works. When government gets involved... That's when things go bad. Now, let me give you an example. Under President Jimmy Carter, there was something called the Community Reinvestment Act. And this gave a lot of authority to the federal government to get involved in mortgages and loans and so forth and so on. But the authority went rather unused during the course of um, that administration. And since... Jimmy Carter was a one-term president. It certainly didn't get any traction under the two-term administration of Ronald Reagan, nor did it get much traction under the one-term administration of his successor, his former vice president, George Herbert Walker Bush. But following President Bush came President Bill Clinton. And as I've said many times in the past, and I said in my opening broadcast when I first announced Uh, the creation of this show, and I explained how America's been going down a slippery slope and how that slope, uh, or rather the slide down that slope, accelerated uh, significantly, beginning with the Clinton administration. This Community Reinvestment Act got new life. And Attorney General Janet Reno began using the power of the Justice Department to force upon lenders an obligation to lend money 
to minority home buyers or prospective minority home buyers, even to the point of threatening civil rights prosecution of these lending institutions if they fail to do so. And it was that pressure and that implied prosecution that was the catalyst for the meltdown of the housing crisis. I don't care what anyone else tries to tell you that it was predatory lending, it was this and that. Absent that pressure and that threat of criminal civil rights prosecution by the Justice Department, many of these lenders would not have lent money to people because the screening process and the credit review process would not have been relaxed to the point that it was, where people could simply say, I want to buy a $500,000 home, but I can't afford a $500,000 home because they won't give me a mortgage for it on my present $50,000 a year salary. What salary do I need to make in order to afford a $500,000 home? Well, most people say that you shouldn't borrow, that your, your salary should be about 20% of what you're looking to borrow. Uh, your annual salary. So that means you should make at least $100,000 a year or $150,000 a year. So they put down, they make $125,000 a year. No verification, and they're granted the loan. They default on it, they can't make it, and the home is repossessed, and somehow it's racist or it's the lender's fault. No, it's not the lender's fault. The lenders had a threat. They had a threat of prosecution if they didn't lend this money. So what did the lenders do? They knew they were lending money to people at rates that did not represent the risk of that borrower defaulting. That person should have paid a much higher interest rate than they did. But if they did, Reno would have used the Community Reinvestment Act and the civil rights laws of the Justice Department to prosecute those institutions. So they were given a loan rate that underrepresented their risk of default. Now, banks are not in the business of losing money. And that's where those little devices known as CDOs were developed, consolidated debt obligations. They layered these mortgages, tranches of mortgages, in such a fashion that they made it a marketable financial instrument to sell to investors looking to get a certain rate of return. The rate of return that was given on these investments did not also not represent the, the actual risk that was involved. And these things quickly were over-leveraged. And when these mortgages began collapsing and going belly up, people took a bath on these collateralized debt obligations. That's all they were. They weren't the homes themselves. They were collateralized debt obligations. They were selling the debt. And the debt was not good debt because it was sold to the people who borrowed the money for the homes at a rate that underrepresented their risk. So if the federal government had not put pressure on these lending institutions to lend this money in this fashion, then there would have been no reason for the financial institutions of America to engage in the financial gymnastics that they did in order to protect their 
own assets and their own companies from financial insolvency that they didn't deserve to have visited upon them because if they had their druthers, they never would have lent this money in the first place. And quite frankly, I don't know how you're helping anyone, be they a minority or not, by lending them money to allow them to purchase a home that they can't afford. Because at the end of the day, you have to pay the bill. And if you can't afford to pay the bill, you shouldn't be getting involved in it in the first place. And that's just the reality of it. I mean, are we, are we soon going to say, by extension, there is a, a, a right to a Mercedes-Benz? So that when you go to buy a car, I need a car. Why do you need a car? I need a car to get to work. There's no public transportation where I go. I need a car. Fine. Explain to me why a Honda or a Toyota or a Nissan or a Chevy can't get you to and from work with the same level of efficiency that a Mercedes-Benz can. So should you have a Mercedes-Benz simply because you want one, even though you can't afford one? I mean, this, is, this is, should be pretty obvious. It's, it's pretty much common sense. But don't let anyone tell you this is the type of chicanery on the part of the federal government that caused the problem for which now the federal government, the cause of the problem, now offers a solution to the problem. And the solution in the minds of that lunatic Elizabeth Warren was to create this controversial agency uh, known as the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and it hasn't done much of anything. It is, as I said, run by zealots who have the power to determine what fairness is of virtually every financial transaction in America. So they'll decide whether it's fair to not give someone a loan because they can't afford to pay for it. Now it's tough for anyone to get a loan. There's no more zero down, uh, sliding scale rates, floating interest rates. No, you have to put 20, 25% down and you want to get a rate. Now, the initial case that sued uh, this uh, challenging the constitutionality of this agency was called Celia Law LLC versus the CFPB, the Consumer the Bureau. So 5-4 decision that the structure of the CFPB was unconstitutional because its director, who has to be confirmed by the US, U.S. Senate, could not be fired by the president at will and that the agency was therefore insulated from political accountability. Now, that's important. The court held that the agency could continue to exist under new rules that allowed the president to fire the director at will. So this is how courts work, ladies and gentlemen. They don't write legislation, or at least they're not supposed to write legislation. They can only act on the questions that are posed. And the question posed was the constitutionality of it based on the way it was organized. And so it was unconstitutional in its original form, because the head of the agency could not be fired by the president, so therefore, once confirmed by the Senate, he could do as he wanted without fear of repercussions. So making him accountable to the chief executive was a good move. So now they did that. And so now that question has been answered. That constitutional question has been satisfied. And so now the agency passes constitutional muster on that basis. But now a new question has been posed to the court. The new question, as I said in the beginning, challenges the means by which this agency is funded. 
The new case is called the CFPB versus the Community Financial Services Association of America Limited. The Biden administration is appealing a ruling against the agency by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. The appeals court struck down the funding mechanism, finding that it violates the U.S. Constitution's Appropriations Clause, which states, no money shall be drawn from the Treasury, but in consequence of appropriations made by law. The purpose of this clause is to ensure that Congress has exclusive power over the federal treasury, the federal purse. And that's needed to ensure that other branches of government don't exceed their authority. That's what the appeals court stated. Quote, whenever the line between a constitutionally and unconstitutionally funded agency may be, or should I say wherever the line may be, this unprecedented arrangement crosses it. The appeal came out of a challenge, I'm reading from an article, that the payday lending industry brought to a CFPB rule that prevented lenders from trying to withdraw payments from borrowers' bank accounts after two consecutive attempts failed for insufficient funds. The Biden administration urged the Supreme Court to take up the case, arguing that allowing the Fifth Circuit ruling to stand could raise grave concerns for the entire financial industry. The ruling has affected more than half of the agency's enforcement cases, providing defendants a justification for dismissal. Now, the Epic Times reached out to the Justice Department for comment, has not received a reply as of press time. But this is a very, very, very potent case because we have here uh, an agency that has a self-funding mechanism. This is an unprecedented thing. When an agency can fund itself, this only goes to the problem that I spoke about when I first began the episode that Congress has truly abdicated its authority to govern this country through the creation of these uh, bureaucracies, which are now self-funding bureaucracies that are beyond the reach of anyone, except now at least this agency is accountable to the, uh, the President of the United States. But we need fewer of these agencies, not more of them. So we're going to keep an eye on this case, and we'll be watching it. Uh, make no mistake about it. But although the court is a conservative court, 6-3 now, and although it likes to rein in the federal government, the one constant that seems to flow through the court that spills over even into the conservative majority is that the court doesn't like to see its own power reduced. They like to see the power of the federal government in the way of the executive branch or Congress or the bureaucracies to be regulated, but they don't want to see their own power abridged in any way. Take this new decision, 5-4. Now we have a 6-3 court, so to go from 6-3 to 5-4 requires judges to flip the other way, two judges to be exact. And in this case, It was Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Brett Kavanaugh. The court ruled in a 5-4 decision that divided the court's conservatives that a death row inmate in Arizona is entitled to contest his sentence in federal court after a state court's procedural rule 
prevented him from doing so. Now, appeals from prisons on, under a death sentence uh, very rarely succeed at the high court. But in this case, because of the defections of Roberts and Kavanaugh, siding with uh, the three liberals, the new one, Jones, appointed by Biden, Kagan, and uh, Sotomayor, uh, they did side. Now, the rulings or the ruling, it doesn't set aside the conviction of the person who brought the case. It was Cruz versus Arizona. Uh, He's a cop killer, by the way. Uh, He was convicted of murdering a cop, and he, in my opinion, should be put to death. But it means that he, Cruz, and about 30 other people who are also similarly situated will now be entitled to new sentencing proceedings. I don't know if they're going to be entitled to new sentencing proceedings, but I think they're at least able to challenge the proceeding in federal court. I think that's all the Supreme Court is saying. For all we know, when these cases are challenged in federal court, the federal courts could just say, no, there was nothing wrong with that state proceeding. Go back and execution of sentence. doesn't mean that the state has to give them a new uh, a new sentencing. It just means they can contest it in federal court. It doesn't mean they necessarily have to be resentenced. The court can always say, we find no fault in the state decision, and we remand the case back to the court for additional proceedings consistent with this opinion, which usually means you're going to get executed. Now, back in 1994, uh, in a case called Simmons versus South Carolina, the Supreme Court found that in capital cases uh, where a defendant is thought to present a future danger to society, the defendant has a due process-based right to let the jury know that he could never be paroled, even if spared the death penalty. Now, why is that? Well, because I can see where the court's going with that. They want jurors to know, in the interest of fairness, that, look, We understand you may feel this man is a danger, and he can never be let go. But we want you to know that you don't have to exercise the death penalty in order to ensure that he will never walk among the free and law-abiding again. Because in this defendant's case, the only other option, if he's convicted, is going to be life without parole. He'll never see the light of day again. Because the feeling was that maybe that, if that issue or that fact is not made clear to a jury, a jury may defer and go for the death penalty, uh, seeing it as the only way to ensure that society will be safe from this sort of uh, predatory person. So this is something that um, the court has visited uh, obliquely at, last in, uh, at least in the past, and uh, it, it probably will perhaps visit again in the future, but it should be interested Interesting, rather, to see how this case, uh, case shakes out. Now, several years after that South Carolina decision, uh, the Supreme Court of the state of Arizona had refused on several occasions to apply that ruling in their death penalty sentencing. In 2016, uh, in a case called Lynch versus Arizona, the Supreme Court confirmed that the ruling applies to that state. So that 
sort of hanky-panky is not going on in Arizona anymore. And why am I not surprised that this is happening in the state of Arizona that seems to have all these election issues as well in Maricopa County? Now, the problem here in this case is that Cruz's case, because you know these death sentence cases linger on death row on appeals for years. His case goes back to 2003. Prior, post the 1994 ruling of Simmons versus South Carolina that says you have to do this, but prior to the 2016 ruling in Lynch versus Arizona where the Supreme Court of the United States actually specifically made a ruling and said to the Arizona state, the Grand Canyon state, you will apply this rule. It does apply to you. So now he's appealing to try and to avail himself of all this under case law. And that would explain, uh, since they, they did issue a ruling specifically targeting the state of Arizona, why the Supreme Court probably ruled, excuse me, the way they did and why Kavanaugh and um, Roberts decided to uh, defect and follow that way. Just to give you a little fact over here, um, to show you this guy's not a sweetheart of a guy, and I hope that they make quick work of him and execute him anyway. In May of 2003, a Tucson police officer by the name of Patrick Hardesty, along with his partner, were investigating a hit-and-run accident. They made their way to the apartment of Cruz, the defendant in this case, who matched a description given by the driver, uh, of the driver, uh, of the hit-and-run vehicle. Now, he provided a false name to the officers, and so they accompanied him to his car so he could get his identification. He ran away and was chased by the police. A confrontation followed, a physical confrontation, and Cruz shot Hardesty to death. He was 40 years old. In 2005, still prior to that 2016 ruling, the jury convicted him of first-degree murder. The trial judge repeatedly ignored the Simmons precedent back from, from back from 1994, denying him the right to inform the jury that under state law, he was not eligible for parole. Cruz's thinking was that providing the jury with that information may have allowed him to rebut the inference that he posed a danger to the public if not given the death penalty, and he was sentenced to death, which is what I told you before. So that's how this stuff shakes out. So it's interesting. Supreme Court loves a conservative court, loves to restrict the power of government, which I agree with, because we need less government in this country, not more. The founding fathers originally envisioned uh, the, gov- the country be ruled primarily at the state level, but I find it interesting and amusing at the same time that they don't so much care to see their own power reduced. In fact, it was the court itself that first gave itself this power that it has. Uh, prior to the early 1800s, I think it was 1804 or 1803, in Marbury v. Madison, the Supreme Court wasn't thought to be a very powerful branch of the three branches of government. But in Marbury versus Madison, where they first identified that power of judicial review, the power to declare a law unconstitutional, 
the court began amassing power within itself through its own action and ruling. So we'll be watching this case as well. Now, on another note, we have things happening uh, on a legal note. We have something in Minnesota going on where the Minnesota Senate is passing a bill or trying to pass a bill granting felons the right to vote and driver's licenses for illegal immigrants without having to show that they belong here. Now, the I never understood this. The Minnesota Democrats are trying to say we need this. We need driver's license for for illegals because it'll make the road safer. As if giving a license to an illegal will somehow make him go to driving classes and make him drive in a more legal fashion. That's like saying if we give a pistol permit to a hitman, uh, he won't do any hits anymore. He'll only want to use the, the gun in a legal fashion. It is the most ludicrous argument that I've ever heard. But when you get people who have licenses that they use as identification, it's just a matter of time before they'll use it to vote illegally like they're already doing. And there are some people, even some Democrats, who are objecting to the felons being granted voting rights and wanting them to wait until the completion of their probation or parole before they're allowed to. But most of the hardliners uh, of the Democratic Party want them to be given the restoration of voting rights the minute they get out of prison. So I guess they must be planning on an exodus of a lot of people from prison. They want as many Democrat votes as they can get, because it's for sure that those people are not going to vote Republican. But when we see this type of thing, we see uh, why people are concerned. Now, I'm only surprised that this isn't already the law in the state of Minnesota, because I can tell you it is the current law in the state of New York, my home state of New York. If you are a felon, as soon as you leave... Your correctional facility and are back in society again. You don't have to wait till the conclusion of your parole or supervisor release, whatever they choose to call it. You can begin to vote. So go figure. Hey, but that pales in comparison to what Fast Eddie Rendell, the former governor of Pennsylvania, tried to do when um, uh, John Kerry was uh, running against George W. Bush. He tried to get prisoners who were incarcerated the right to vote, hoping to ensure that the state of Pennsylvania would go to John Kerry. But that was shot down. But these are the type of things that are going, are going on. Uh, but we'll be keeping an eye on. Now, here's what I really wanted to get to, uh, now that we got away from the legal portion of the program. Now that the Congress, or at least the House of Representatives, has tamed changed hands and is now in the control of the Republicans. Uh, We also have Republican senators calling for things. And they know that they can call for it in the Senate, and even though the Senate is controlled by the Democrats, uh, if they don't get their way in the Senate, maybe some House representatives pick it up. And at the leader of this movement that I'm about to tell you about is Senator Rand Paul. Now, Rand Paul has been a big, big fighter for true transparency in what happened with this COVID-19 virus, how it came into existence, and whether or not Dr. Fauci has been candid with us. 
I think having watched Fauci a number of times, looking at his answers, looking at his demeanor, the way he comports himself, it's clear to me he's an arrogant son of a bitch, and it's clear to me that he's lying based on the frantic emails that they've uncovered that went back and forth between him and other people to try and come up with stories to account for the existence of the COVID-19 virus, like it happened in a wet market. And remember back in the early days that if you said it came from a Chinese lab, you were dismissed as a conspiracy theorist, you were roundly denounced, and you were told that you were a, you were a fringe person, you were spreading misinformation. And forums like Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, these things that people have come to rely on as almost a prime Twitter as a primary source of news, substituting those sources from what used to be legitimate sources of news, uh, were getting padded news. Anything that challenged the narrative that came out of the CDC and Fauci's mouth was denounced as being uh, a conspiracy theory. It's not true. It's misinformation. This is the new watchword, misinformation. Oh, we have to ban your post. I'm sorry, Mr. Dury. We have to ban your video of your podcast because it violates our misinformation policy. No, it violates it doesn't agree with you policy. Anything you don't agree with is suddenly misinformation. That's a very fancy way of describing censorship. And we now know that had majority of Americans known about Hunter Biden's laptop, that they would have voted very, very differently in 2020 than they did. And we're going to get to that a little bit later in the program, because that's a very, very big issue. We're going to come back to that. But Senator Rand Paul is leading the charge. They're calling for the Biden administration to declassify materials on the origin of COVID-19. Rand Paul said on on Twitter that documents described in a Wall Street Journal report should be declassified. Quote, President Biden needs to declassify everything we know today, said Senator Mike Braun, Republican of Indiana. According to the report, the U.S. Department of Energy is assessing that the pandemic likely started from a Wuhan laboratory leak. That makes two major agencies of the federal government intelligence network that have found the greater likelihood is that this virus was not naturally occurring, but leaked from the Wuhan laboratory. The FBI has also taken this position. The CIA has been noncommittal on it. Perhaps because maybe they have sources someplace in China that, if they did, might cause them to give up. I have no idea why they're silent on it. But the FBI and the U.S. Department of Energy have both come to the conclusion that the greater likelihood is that this virus came from a Wuhan laboratory leak and not from a bat soup in a wet market someplace in the Wuhan province. So now all of a sudden... All of you people who were told you were lunatics a few years ago, nothing's changed. You suddenly find yourself in rather good company. You're in the company of the U.S. Energy Department and the FBI, who now say it was a leak. The White House and its office did not respond for any comments on this and whether we need to declassify stuff. 
Uh, the Department of Energy told news outlets in a statement it continues to support the thorough, careful, and objective work of our intelligence professionals in investigating the origins of the COVID-19 virus, as directed by the president. But this is extremely interesting that all of a sudden two major agencies in the federal government now come to the conclusion that this was a leak from a chemical weapons laboratory engaged in gain-of-function research, research that was specifically prohibited by the Obama administration by executive order of President Barack Obama himself, none other, and yet funded by Anthony Fauci in a Chinese lab. And mind you, the two agencies of the federal government, they're just two agencies out of the intelligence community, which also includes the CIA. They're not the only two agencies to find that this thing came from a lab. This is now also the opinion of the State Department. In a document they made public last year, they stated that a lab leak was the most likely origin of COVID-19. And Senator Josh Hawley, whom I like, he introduced a piece of legislation on Sunday that would make all U.S. intelligence reports on COVID-19 open to the people. He feels the people have a right to know. Now, we all know it started back in Wuhan, China, back in 2019. But do you know that despite all this talk about a wet market and the bats and the le- and all this other nonsense that came from that, that no animal host for the virus that causes COVID-19 has been identified to date. And Chinese officials keep pushing back at any attempts to probe how this pandemic came to be. And they've also made many claims that were unsubstantiated, including what goal that this virus uh, stemmed from experiments that us, the United States, were conducting. You want to talk about chutzpah? They certainly have it. Now, the last thing I wanted to cover today uh, concerns the issue of transgenderism in children. I'm not talking about transgenderism in adults. I've spoken about this in the past. I've read to you the very, very brilliant article written by Dr. Paul McHugh, the former head of psychiatry at John Hopkins University, where he explained that he felt this was a body dysmorphic disorder. Uh, it was a psychological disorder. It was no different than uh, when you have a young woman who's, let's say, bulimic or anorexic, looks in the mirror and sees a fat girl, even though she's not fat, She's starving herself, and she's thin, and she's anorexic, but she sees a fat girl. She can see a fat girl all she wants. That does not make her one. The same thing Dr. McHugh held true for um, transgenderism, which is why John Hopkins, the first institution in this country to ever perform the surgery, no longer performs it because they've gotten less than satisfactory results. Uh, over the course of tracking this thing, and they see that people who have had the surgery do no better and are no more contented or happy with their lives than people who elected to go for therapy, and they think that amputating healthy body parts just to achieve results no better than therapy is not the way to go. But this we're talking about today has to do 
with children. Now, the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, this is a fantastic article that I came across in, in the Epic Times. This is a big, big organization, is warning about, quote, unknown and unknowable long-term risks it says are inherent to gender-affirming care in minors, adding that the consequences of gender transition surgery are irreversible. Gender-affirming procedures include so-called puberty blockers, sex hormones, and surgery, such as castration, penectomy, mastectomy, the Nonpartisan Professional Association noted in its February 20th official statement outlining its stance on gender-affirming care for children. It warns that transition procedures are generally irreversible and have a high probability of causing sterilization. The procedures also commit a patient to a lifelong need for medical, surgical, and psychological care. Such procedures in minors also are medically and ethically contradicted due to a lack of informed consent, the organization stated. Quote, physicians and medical professionals should refuse to be mandated or coerced to participate in procedures to which they have, a, have ethical or scientific objections or which they believe would harm a patient. So, they have, on the one hand, do no harm, okay? And on the other hand, they know there's no consent because they're a minor, which means they have an obligation to tell the parents. Now, I'm going to stop at this point and refer to a different article. While this organization, this well-thought-of medical organization, is issuing this advice, which seems very, very reasonable and logical and commonsensical to me, we have states that are banning parents from resisting their kids going transgender. Listen to some of these stories. Quote, attacks on parents are getting closer to home. From a woke education establishment to increasing activist child protection agencies, parents are losing the right to decide how to raise their children. Listen to this. My new legislation, the Parental Right to Protect Act, will ensure parents aren't expelled from child's life. This is an advocate writing this uh, article, a woman named Virginia Fox. Let me get to some examples, though. Take Chloe Cole, for example. At age 13, she began taking puberty blockers. At age 15, she had a double mastectomy. At age 16... She made the decision to stop these interventions and instead affirm her sex. Earlier this year, she launched an organization alongside others who regret having received so-called gender-affirming care. This organization that she launched now warns, now works to warn others about the harms caused by such medical interventions. It's no wonder countries such as the United Kingdom and Sweden have recently suspended their use of this experimental approach on children, recognizing the inherent risks. But the Biden administration isn't recognizing it, and they and radical Democrats in Congress, they seem to be all in towards pushing this radical agenda on our schools. How about this? 
Schools across the country are pushing children's books and curricula in, in the classroom to normalize transgender ideology. Now, how about this for a goal? When parents ask for access to school curricula, many are stonewalled. One mother in Rhode Island received a bill from the state totaling $74,000 after filing a Freedom of Information Act request to gain access to her daughter's school curriculum. You're trying to tell me that I don't have a right to know what my daughter's school curriculum is? I have to file a Freedom of Information Act request just to find out what it is? I don't know what's a bigger affront that a parent has to actually file a Freedom of Information Act request or that they get a $74,000 bill when they file that request. This is insanity. They have various tactics now they're using for silencing parents, barring or restricting parents from participating in public meetings. One school board in Pennsylvania now being sued after demonstrating a, parent, a pattern of trampling on First Amendment rights, cutting off parents in the middle of a sentence, yelling over them during their allocated time to speak, deleting remarks that they made if it disagrees with them, and stripping them from the official record, the transcript, and the video. Parents who do not support transgender medical interventions are sometimes kept in the dark by the education bureaucracy. An Ohio school district told teachers they do not have to inform parents if a student began transitioning at school. And one Florida school district kept gender transition counseling of a 12-year-old girl secret from her parents until she attempted suicide twice. Let me tell you something. I have a child... You give that therapy without telling me, and my kid tries to commit suicide twice. I'm not going to the superintendent of the schools. I'm not going to the governor. I'm not going to the mayor. I'm not going to anyone. I'm coming to see you. This is insanity. And I know this stuff goes on. It's times like this that, you know, I feel bad uh, for parents that are in this position. My boy goes to what is considered a very good school uh, here in New York City, and yet I have it on good authority that the school nurse gives out the morning after pill to girls in the school like she's giving out candy, and the parents are never told. Never told. Girl has sex, could be 13, 14, gets pregnant or worried about getting pregnant, had unprotected sex, goes down to the nurse. I need the morning after pill. Never tell the parents. What happens if a kid gets an allergic reaction to this pill? What are you going to tell the parents then? I see big lawsuit there. But this is what's happening. And it, gets, it gets better. If you think you've heard the worst of it, you haven't. All these issues of the use of the drugs and the doctors and schools... But now Child Protective Services, New York City, we used to call it the Bureau of Child Welfare. In many of these states, they're getting involved. Even in a state like Indiana, a court recently upheld the removal of a child from parental custody after the Child Protective Services investigation alleged the parents were verbally and emotionally abusing the child. And you know what form this verbal and emotional abuse took, ladies and gentlemen, 
they would not use the child's preferred pronouns. Like, you know, the us, them, we, him, her. They probably just called her. So because they wouldn't use the child's preferred pronouns, they were verbally and emotionally abusing the child. In California, another woman, Abigail Martinez, lost custody of her daughter, and a court permitted only one hour of visitation each week because Martinez did not want her daughter to begin transgender medical interventions. Tragically, her daughter took her own life after changing her name and taking cross-sex hormones. These parents are being separated from their children for simply protecting them from procedures known to be harmful and that now a, a, a reputable medical organization is telling you is harmful. But you would think after suicides and issues like this that the politicians pushing this stuff would get a, a, a crisis of conscience. They don't. This past September, Gavin Newsom signed into law SB 107, jeopardizing the rights of parents in and out of California. It allows minors anywhere in the United States to run away from their parents to get transgender surgery in California, and their parents can be barred from intervening. Now, you've got to be kidding me. This is a weaponization of the government to rob loving, caring, legitimate, hardworking parents of their most precious gift from God, their children. And we have the dope. We have the evidence. We have doctors and physicians from this organization, the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, telling us just how bad it is. And just as Dr. Paul McHugh said in that great article in the Wall Street Journal that I've quoted in past shows, the AAPS says the same thing. Biological sex cannot be changed. The association maintains that while medical, surgical, and other methods can be used to alter the physical appearance of a person's body, they can't change a person's biological sex. We do not have the power to turn a man into a woman or a woman into a man. All these surgeries get you is a very masculinized woman or a very feminized man, but they are men and women nevertheless. As they state, biological sex is determined at conception by genotype, and with the exception of rare cases that could result in ambiguous genitalia, biological sex is indeed obvious and is correctly identified at birth. The genotype determines the role of a person in reproduction. So the, the long-term effects of what they're trying to do, this is almost like science fiction. Foy, I hate to make this comparison. A lot of people on the left do it all the time. They like to compare Donald Trump to a fascist or, or Hitler or Mussolini. But I have to say... Stripping the innocent among us from the parents and subjecting him to this sort of horrific sci-fi sort of medical experimentation is almost on the par with what was done in Nazi Germany to poor captive Jewish men and women and Jewish children used for experimentation by the Third Reich. 
and we're seeing it right here in the United States, all based because of this happy horse manure of gender fluidity, one of the most controversial of, of theories. Now, why do I give you such a wide swath of things going on from what's going on in the Supreme Court, what's going on in the Minnesota state courts, what's going on with COVID, what's going on with gender dysphoria and this transgender movement, because we still have an election coming up in 2024. And you're being told by everyone who has a microphone that the time for Donald Trump is passed, that we need a Trump-style candidate, but not Donald Trump. It's got to be somebody other than Trump. Well, I'm telling you right now, ladies and gentlemen, this is not something to be taken lightly. We are not simply in a situation where if we get a Republican elected, any Republican, that all of our problems are going to dissipate and go away. We're not in that situation. We're in the following situation. We're in a war, as you can see from all of this I've just laid out for you, particularly with our children, for the very soul of this country, for the very preservation of our way of life. And we need a warrior to preserve that. The election of just any Republican doesn't turn the direction back in the other, the clock back in the other direction. It simply slows the rate of decline. I'm not interested in slowing the rate of decline. I'm interested in reversing decline. DeSantis is a good man. He's a good governor. If he gets elected, he'll want what every first-term administration wants a second term. And he will never go the last mile like Donald Trump will. For instance, you can say what you want about the election of 2020, that there was no fraud. There was fraud. And even if you don't believe that there was actual fraud at the ballot box, which I believe there was, and I've explained numerous times on this program and given you examples of it, it is now readily apparent that there was a consolidated effort on the part of people like Mark Zuckerberg spending over $400 million on Facebook and Twitter, deliberately trying to suppress information crucial to a voter making an informed decision. So they made an uninformed decision, and it was a bad decision. They voted for a dementia-ridden puppet instead of a man who'd give us no new wars, had exported energy instead of having to import it, brought us $1.87 gas, and brought us economic prosperity. That, ladies and gentlemen, that manipulation of social media will never be investigated by any other Republican. They may talk about it in the campaign, but they'll never investigate it. I can see it now. Whoever gets elected, other than Trump, would say, in the interest of making a gesture of peace, we're going to cross the aisle, let bygones be bygones, we can't relive 2020, it's over and done with, let's go forward for today. But there is no going forward unless we first go backward and see how we were waylaid in 2020, because it's only going to happen again. So I don't care what anyone else tells you. You want to see this country put back on a footing, you want to see this country restored, don't worry about his tweets. Don't worry about his occasional inartful comments. Look at the big picture. Separate the forest from the trees. There's only one choice for 2024. And that choice was, is, and will remain Donald J. Trump. For the Jamie Dury Show, 
I'm Jamie Dury.